Welcome to another episode of Makers Weekly. In this episode, I sit down with Aparna Dinakaran to explore the interesting reason she started her new company, Monitor ML, and that in this new world where machines are making a lot of important decisions for us, they can be biased, just like humans. We talk about how Monitor ML will help with that. Well, Aparna, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Uh, really looking forward to this episode. Um, I know there's a lot of action in the artificial intelligence and machine learning space, so uh, very much interested in going deeper on that with you. Um, to kick off, do you mind just giving us an overview of Monitor ML and kind of what the problem is that you're working on? Yeah. Um, first off, thanks, Dan, for inviting me on your you know podcast, and I think that what you're doing is really awesome. Um, so Monitor ML is a platform to help monitor machine learning in production. Um, it's a you know API-based platform that just connects with different sort of frameworks so that when machine learning models are actually deployed from like the research phase into the real world and actually into real products, we're able to monitor how they're doing, um, how you know it's impacting the business, and if there's really any unintended consequences of machine learning that um, humans or you know people working on these models are not really able to like pick up by themselves. Do you mind just to help give some of the listeners who may not be uh, that familiar with machine learning and and kind of how it works and how companies use it? Um, yeah. Do you mind just giving us an overview, like what is machine learning, right? And like how does it, like what's the difference between machine machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah. Okay. So machine learning, I would say, is kind of like in an application of AI, um, it's the idea that we should be able to give machines or you know some some piece of code um, access to a ton of data, and the machines and code will be able to like learn for themselves and come out with predictions. So um, an example that I'll give is you know if you fed a machine, here's all the like historical weather data that's been going on for the last year it would be able to predict out what would the weather be today. Um, AI is a lot broader than that, and it's it's the broader concept that machines will be able to carry out tasks um, that, that we consider smart. So these tasks usually involve multiple layers of predictions. So it's kind of like if you have one prediction in this case of like, what's the weather going to be? An AI in this case might be able to tell you, okay, here's the weather today. And here's the things that you should do. Like maybe you should carry an umbrella or maybe you might want to bring a jacket um, or maybe you might want to go this specific route because there's snow on the road. And so it's, it's kind of building on top of layers of predictions to give you um, more information and, and carry out tasks in a way that perhaps more closer to a human would. That is super helpful. So would it, would it be fair to say that for some form of artificial intelligence, there would be multiple or many machine learning models that would be analyzing different data sets that would be able to be inputs for, for that actual intelligent component of the AI? Yep. So um, I think that, you know, a really cool example that, that people are working on today are, you know, self-driving cars. And, you know, self-driving cars are taking in, a t- making a ton of predictions every single second. They're looking at 
traffic signal lights, figuring out when it's going to, you know, maybe switch or like be able to just read between the colors and say go or not go. And then at the same time, there's computer vision models that are figuring out, is that a human or is that just like a road that I can drive? And then there's also, you know, a ton of predictions that they're making about the speed that I should be driving on and like what's the route that I should be going. And so these are a bunch of predictions that are each have their own machine learning model. They're all being combined to do one task, which is, you know, be able to self-drive. Yeah, I think the self-driving um, example is, is super interesting. So if we were to use like, you know, the the self-driving car example, like where would monitor ML fit into that? Like at what point does, is your tool become useful for a team that's working on self-driving cars? Yeah, so monitor ML... Um, you know, maybe I can back up a little bit and just kind of talk about like, you know, how, how this problem kind of emerges. Absolutely. Um, so what folks today to do on a bunch of different machine learning teams across the industry, across a number of different tech companies and even non-tech companies is they'll have this model and they'll use this model to predict some X thing. So, you know, just using our self-driving car example, let's say that, you know, the camera in the car, or the LiDAR sensors are using a, a model to figure out what is the object in front of me. Um, they'll build a model based off of like a ton of different data points um, and they'll be able to kind of differentiate between humans or maybe trees or poles or whatever. And so that's that's like the current model that's, that, that they've done research on. Eventually, that model is going to be deployed in, in an actual car. When that model is actually deployed in the car, it's really hard for data scientists or engineers to get that feedback loop of, is the model performing as expected in the real world? Um, and it's really hard for them to track the performance of the model that they, they've been sort of testing in the research world in the actual production environment. And so what they do currently is they'll get a bunch of events of like, oh, here's what the computer vision model is like seeing out in the real world. Here's maybe like the events that are come up. Here's um, maybe the predictions that my model is currently making. But then there's no sort of tools for them to come back and, and sort of synthesize and cohort and analyze, okay, here's the common mistakes that my model made. Here are the common successful things that my model predicted. What are some unintended consequences of this model being in production. Maybe there's a new data point that I didn't show it during the training part of the model that this model is now seeing in production. For example, maybe a traffic cone. Like maybe the area that I was training my model on, there were no traffic cones. But now this model in production is seeing a ton of traffic cones. So how does that model react to that new piece of information? And maybe, you know, when models are given new information, typically they tend to do poorly. And so Right now, data scientists and machine learning engineers spend, you know, 20% of their time just looking into what is my model doing in production and how can I use that data and insight to help improve my model in the future. And that process takes a huge amount of time. They have to go collect the data, run a bunch of scripts to figure out how I can actually go figure out new areas that my model can improve in. And so a place this is like a really common place that monitor ML would be able to fit into um, because folks would have this tool to figure out how your models are doing in production, be able to do cohort analysis of different scenarios that model has been exposed to and then break down where the model is succeeding, where the model is not succeeding. 
So um, what does the actual implementation of Monitor ML look like? So like for those of for the listeners out there, you know, they're not looking at the website, they, they don't know like what this product is, like help them yeah. understand um, like I'm a machine learning engineer, like when do when and how do I engage Monitor ML? What is the tooling that that I'm exposed to? Maybe just talk a little bit about the actual product features. Yeah. So um, Monitor ML is a uh, platform agnostic, um, kind of a framework agnostic platform. So it doesn't matter if you know you're building your models on something like TensorFlow or PyTorch or wherever you're building your model. Um, however you're training it, however you're deploying it, the part of the machine learning workflow that we care about is um, when that model is actually deployed into the real world. Um, and so to help help that workflow, our platform currently, when folks are you know done developing their model or even while they're developing their model, they can sort of post their model onto our platform. They can store all of their training information if they want to on our platform. Um, and then every time that that model is making a prediction in the real world, their, um, their model's predictions are logged and then there's functions that they're able to kind of like code or like input into our platform to help them track that performance based off of the model's um, predictions in, in production. And so it's like a ton of dashboards um, like synthesized by what that model is is doing based off of what the data scientist actually wants to look into. Got it. So they, they can log into MonitorML and they have a dashboard. There's a bunch of different dashboards that give them like a good visualization layer around the performance and some of the things that are most meaningful um, to them and helps them optimize the model. What format do they post? Like I know it's an API powered tool. What format does that model post into Monitor ML? Yeah, so we're we're sort of um, we have like this this I guess like our own um, I guess like version of like a JSON or something. Okay. Um, we've defined like an like a structure so that we have like a format for like what sort of information we would need from your model, what sort of information we would need, you know, from these predictions, and then when they're actually sort of storing the performance or defining their functions, like we have a structure, a common structure for all of these things so that once they define it once, you know, that that kind of can be repeated over and over again. Um, and, and they don't have to do that manually. Gotcha. So you guys, you guys have developed your somewhat of like your own protocol around how, how machine learning models interact with monitor ML. Yep. Yep. And the, the kind of like part of this, that, that has been interesting is, you know, machine learning is, I think is it's, it's starting to grow as a field, right? Like I think originally it, it was mostly used in, in tech companies and now we're starting to see, you know, traditional businesses starting to like embrace machine learning and AI. Um, but the workflow is still really messy. Um, there's, there's so many different ways that people are developing models. Some people kind of, you know, they'll, dump some sort of CSV, spin up like a common SciPy or some kind of Python like built-in model. Um, and then they'll they'll deploy it on, you know, they'll just hand write the model in code. Or they'll like use something like AWS or SageMaker or something to like figure out how to deploy that model. And so the workflow is really messy. People people are sort of experimenting with different kind of platforms. But I think that the, the thing that we're trying to move forward and kind of figure out is how can we figure out that common protocol so that, you know, 
regardless of how you're actually building and serving your model, you have this common way of analyzing performance. So I think that's like a very healthy overview of the of the product and kind of the problem space. Um, how did you get involved in this in this uh, this area? Yeah. So um, my background is in computer science. Um, I did my undergrad in it, and then I sort of worked on different machine learning teams across kind of the tech industry. So um, I was you know at Apple at a company called TubeMogul, and then most recently at Uber where I worked on the ML team. And I think that this was just kind of a common common problem that I saw in deploying models and figuring out, you know, how how that model is doing in production. But I honestly, like the moment where I think it really hit me that that this is like a really big problem was um, I, I briefly was doing a PhD program in um, in computer vision. And in computer vision there's this really big bias issue in facial recognition models. You'll see, um, if you kind of just Google facial recognition models bias, you'll hit a ton of articles just about how, you know, darker skinned people aren't identified as humans or, um, you know, you'll see that women's features are often kind of like mistagged. And so I think that I really got interested in how models have these inherent biases because humans have inherent biases. You'll start to see that like a ton of the data sets that actually go into training these models are mostly um, are mostly you know white men. Um, and so mm. I, I think that, that that sort of like space became really interesting to me. Um, it's an area in computer science that's now really active in research called AI fairness. And there's a ton of researchers, you know, at various universities just trying to understand how do you know when machine learning models are behaving biased or discriminatory? Um, and honestly, I just kind of started diving into that space. Um, and you know, earlier I was kind of alluding to like, how do you know that like models are performing as expected in production? A lot of this is is kind of not knowing what the unintended consequences of of throwing models into production. Um, there, there was like a really recent example of how this person got. Uh, you know, there was this couple and, you know, the man, the, the husband or, you know, the, the, the male in that relationship um, was approved for the Apple card by, you know, that was backed by Goldman Sachs. And then the woman in that relationship or the wife, even though, you know, they, they share like the same exact, you know, she has a high credit score. They share the same amount of savings. You know, they share a bank account. Um, she was rejected. And I think Steve Wozniak even like posted that his own wife, you know, had issues with that. And so there, this problem is, it kind of seems a little futuristic. Hey, AI is biased against like people in society. But I think the more and more models are out there making decisions on behalf of humans, um, the more we have to kind of be, be mindful that the biases we have in society don't translate into um, the, the AI that, that's going to be affecting us in the future. Yeah, I think that topic is incredibly interesting. Actually, in in, uh, in doing research for this episode, I actually went down a little bit of that rabbit hole last night. Um, yeah, just there's tons of reading, and I think what was very interesting for me was that um, was that models can actually produce bias um, on data points that aren't like exclusively called out as inputs. So I yeah. thought it was really interesting that like you know, there, a model could potentially have a gender bias or, you know, have a nationality bias, even though like gender or nationality might not even be a data input to that model. 
um, just inherently by how the model was built. So I think I think it's a whole, it opens up like a whole new realm of of potential issues. Um, so it's it's a pretty cool and, and very interesting interesting topic. I, I yeah. do I do like that. That's like one of the one of the main drivers for what got you interested in this as well. Um, yeah, there, there's a ton of people who who like I think I think that the research into this space is kind of just kicking off, but it's being led by a lot of like you know, there's there's someone that I really look up to called Joy Bulam Winnie. I, I might be butchering that, but she founded this this um, this organization called Algorithmic Justice League. And it's it's essentially kind of to her her goal is to kind of create a a more ethical and inclusive technology, um, and I I think that the space is just now starting to to grow because folks are starting to realize there's a lot of racial and gender bias in in AI services. Yeah, and it might not even be bias that the you know the authors of these models are aware of as well. Um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things around hiring is, is just talking about, um, you know, subconscious bias or whatever, where, where you don't, you don't even know, but it's just, it's just happening in background threads. So I think it's, it's super interesting topic and I'm sure we could do a whole episode just specifically on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but moving, moving a little bit back to, let's switch gears a little bit back to the, the, the modern ML story. Yeah. Um, so do you, like what, what stage are you guys currently at? Um, because I think there could be some interesting uh, questions around, you know, who are your first customers? Like, how did you approach your first customers, and and who is this product actually built for? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I guess I'll just go down the timeline of like how how this company started. So, I kind of got interested in this space, and then the first thing I actually did was um, apply to a a incubator program. Um, and so we actually went through Y Combinator um, summer twenty nineteen, um, and and Y Combinator is you know, a, one of the largest like technology incubator kind of programs, they give you seed funding and they kind of bring together a bunch of founders who are starting companies and you kind of get a community and you get mentors of people who have built, you know, really successful technology companies to kind of guide you and mentor you and give you feedback. Um, and so I, I, we went through that program and I think that that program was really useful in sort of helping us kind of figure out, you know, how we should how we should approach even solving or, or building a company around this. Um, and so we we got into the program. We started building out our platform. Um, we started um, posting about it, like, internally. You know, they have a ton of, like, resources. So we started posting about it internally. And we got connected to people that identified with the problem that they wanted to have more insight into their models when they were um, deployed. And so one, that's kind of how we got our first customer um, was through, I guess, connections in Y Combinator. Um, and, and they kind of like helped us, like the first customers helped us kind of like build out our product by telling us what were their issues, um, what was like the biggest pain point, and like what is the fastest way that we could help them unblock that problem. Got it. And then and from there... Um how do you think about like profiling your customer? Like, are you targeting, is it like a developer tool? Are you looking specifically to engage like a developer community? Is it more of like a direct sales model? Like, how do you guys think about distribution? Yeah, I I think that, um, so, sorry, to answer your original question, we're, 
still a really small seed stage company. Um, we are about six months old, maybe eight months at this point. Um, we have started, um, you know, I, I think that the goal is to build a, a developer-centric community um, and sort of build tools and sort of like have integrations in a way that engineers are find, find it easy. Um, but at the same time, I think that that's probably the approach that we have to take because we were sort of a really like first time founders, first time sort of like building and launching products. And so I think for us, it's harder to go and like immediately go sell to enterprise. And so starting off like profiling customers, whether they have a data science team, how often are they deploying models? When does this become a problem for them? And um, are they are they sort of at least right now willing to sit down and like help us iterate through through different features? Um, and I think that the the goal is sort of like to to like keep building features, keep building out the product, get to a point where where we can start um, sort of onboarding bigger and larger enterprise customers. Very cool. I see the pricing model right now is pretty straightforward. So it looks like you just have you have a free tier. Um, which has a smaller set of of models and, and alerting capabilities, and then you have just like seventy five bucks uh, per user per month. How did you guys think about pricing? I think like pricing in the enterprise world can be can be very tough, right? It's very hard to to understand how to price the product. What what uh you know what sort of motions did you guys go through to establish you know this specific uh, pricing model? Um, to be honest. I think that when we first started, you know, it was free, right? Like we just wanted feedback. Um, we just wanted to hear, you know, is this useful for you? And I think what kind of came down to us was like, you know, if if there's sort of like smaller teams, like the the, the stage where you're a startup, maybe you have five data scientists, um, it makes sense to pay by head. And I think that we're we're still sort of in that stage where there's limited folks who are probably going to be using this platform on these teams, on these like teams that maybe maybe they have one data science team. Um, and so our, our pricing model needed to be sort of in a place where we could onboard and support startups without price being a blocker. But I think that the eventual goal is to eventually sell to enterprises. And I think that the pricing model for enterprises is going to be vastly different. Because they're they're gonna get a ton more, you know, support and um, you know, custom features and onboarding, and I think that you know that that sort of is where eventually we want to get into. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, there's a there is a big hurdle uh, becoming like truly enterprise ready that requires a lot of additional you know inputs and a lot of additional overhead from the from a startup. So I think you know thinking about. Um, you know, a little bit, basically, more expensive product for them is is a uh, is like a natural evolution. Um, so, as you guys think about like the the you know twenty twenty, like what's on the roadmap? How are you thinking about you know what, what are some of the main goals for this year? Um, what does that look like for for you and the team? So, our our goals are kind of just kind of continuing, like continuing to build out product. Um, I think that especially a deep tech product like this will take a couple of 
a couple of years to get to a point where your platform will be better than what some folks have in-house. Like some of these big companies, like, you know, your Microsofts, IBMs, Amazons, um, you know, even the banks, like they, they have some kind of like, I want to say, I don't know about the banks actually, but at least the tech companies have some sort of internal version of how, of how they're addressing this problem. And I think that the goal for us is to kind of get to a point this year where our platform can can handle the scale and security needed to target non-techno non-technology companies that are still building models. Like if I was to island hop to um, to like where we want it to be, like starting off with onboarding non-technology companies, um, getting getting them sort of onto our platform and then eventually moving on to more technology companies as our product evolves is kind of the direction that I'm, I'm hoping 2020 goes in. Yeah, I do think the timing feels right as it relates to like some of those non-tech companies that you're thinking about. Like a lot of those companies are are really starting to understand that data science is important, machine learning is going to be a big part of the future. So they're just now starting to invest in those uh, in those spaces. Um, and with that, they will have very immature teams, and they'll be looking for for tooling to kind of help bring them up to speed with maybe what some of the more sophisticated tech companies have. Um, so it looks like you might be like right in that that sweet spot for for companies like that. Yeah, it's interesting because a company like this, you, you got to worry about being a little too early sometimes, because I think some of these like larger whatever traditional companies are like they're just starting to kind of. I think a study came out at the end of last year about you know companies that are using ML or like doing you know X percentage better than companies who aren't, and so you're starting to see them kind of embrace machine learning more. But to get to a point where you have enough models actually being deployed, that now you're worried about whether the models you're deploying are doing as well as you want them to do. That there there might be you know it it could be a little early, and so kind of staging it out so that you're still trying to bring in revenue while you're like building for the long-term vision is, is something that, um, you know, I, I think we're trying to balance as we're going through this. What is the, uh, what does the team currently look like? Like what's the profile of the team? I, I imagine you guys are still really very, you know, lean and mean. Um, but how do you think about like team size now? How do you think about scaling the team over time? Yeah. So right now our team is, um, two full-time engineers. Um, we have some folks who help, um, but it's it's mostly two full-time engineers. Um, we do sort of mostly coding, like building out platform. So I mostly lead all of like the product and integrations, um, and so in, so going and like pitching to customers, trying to onboard them onto the platform, translating their problems into actual architecture. That sort of becomes my responsibility. Um, I think the team is probably going to have to hire engineers because our our sort of feature board is starting to get bigger. And I think that, you know, we will eventually need to double down on, on more of like the pitching and, and customer and sales. Um, right now, it's it's mostly just me focusing on that. But I think that the more we can kind of get out there and and talk to more folks and get an idea of like what they need now and what they need down the road. Like those, those are very relational relationship based. And so I think, you know, starting conversations off early is, is probably the right way to go about it. 
And you mentioned, um, so you, you graduated Y Combinator and you're a seed stage company. Did you do a round after Y Combinator? Or like, what's the, you know, one, what's like the, the funding history, if you're uh, comfortable talking about it? And then, like, what is your philosophy as an early stage founder as it relates to, to venture capital? Yeah, so we, we just did a small angel round. And that was actually because we decided to defer our demo day. Um, you know, the actual one where you can like raise from a ton of more institutional VCs because we we wanted to onboard some more customers, kind of get to a point where our product was a little bit um, little bit more fleshed out. Um, y Combinator and sort of raising is interesting. So I think if you're building a, a like non-super deep tech product, um, there's a lot you can do without engineering that that kind of allows you to to kind of follow the traditional you know YC route where you you kind of build your product in three months go do a bunch of sales and then kind of raise a large round from VCs um, I think we decided you know we were still building out product we were just starting to onboard folks and so we wanted an extra six months um, to kind of flesh out and onboard more folks before we did sort of a VC round so we're in that phase right now where you know we have we, we have like an angel we did an angel round after YC and we'll probably raise more um, in a couple of months. So by deferring demo day, do they actually let you come back and do demo day like during the next cohort? Yep. So I think um, you know I'll, I I want to say maybe ten to twenty percent of every batch sort of they have they defer. Um, fun fact, actually Stripe I think deferred twice in when they went through YC um, and that was because they just kind of wanted to, to build out product. Um, and so, you know, every, every, like I think startups journey is different and they do a good job of like kind of telling you to do what's best for your company. So I, I think that for us, it was a good decision for us to defer. And then you, know, you get one shot at demo day and you don't want to kind of squander it when you're too early. Um, so, so for us, it was kind of useful to push it off until, um, this upcoming demo day. Yeah, and that makes so much sense, um, especially like the one shot aspect. Like, there's only so many times we're going to have that audience, you know, the top VCs in the valley, looking at you and coming back with some material uh, traction or at least like material learnings versus, you know, just some some vaporware slide deck. Uh, I exactly. think I think would serve would serve you guys so much better. <laughs> yeah, and I I think that there's. There's one thing that I kind of learned from going through YC is YC is really great when you're going through growth. Like maybe when you've already worked on your product for maybe a year, um, kind of built it out, and you're at that point right now where you you need to figure out how to grow your company. Um, they're great at that. I think that's actually, I, I would think, what they excel at. Um, there, there's obviously definitely companies that, you know, start YC, no line of code, which is actually where we were. We started YC, we had a vision and an idea, but we had no code, nothing written. And we started building like day one of YC. Um, and so it, it kind of just depends on like wh- where you are and like what you kind of want out of YC. For us, what we wanted out of YC was, you know, that that it really pushes you. It forces you to kind of hustle a little harder because you have this like time frame, you have this time box and you kind of have like an upcoming demo day. And so I, I really appreciated that part of, of YC. Like they really light a fire under your butt. Um, and that's 
that's really important in the early days. Um, and I think it, it definitely pushed me to like, you know, launch into starting a startup. Um, but for other folks who, who have already been building something and, and they want to kind of figure out growth, YC is a great place to go do that. That's awesome. I think it's, that's very, uh, very valuable wisdom for, for a lot of the listeners who are thinking about, you know, what is that incubator approach? When should they start thinking um, about getting involved with, with some of the top incubators? Um, cool. So as it relates to, so, so what's next for you guys? Like, what are some of the biggest challenges right now? Is it mainly just, just catching up on your, on your roadmap? You just, it sounds like you guys have quite a bit of, um, of feature development still to do. Is that really where you, where you guys are focused on? Yeah. And I think it's also sort of figuring out, you know, where the space is going to go. Um, the broader, I guess, area that we're, we're entering is, is ML ops, um, which is, you know, there's DevOps for, for like how code is deployed and, and software is sort of distributed. And I think that that's sort of a, a more streamlined process in, in tech companies today. But I think ML ops is, is still sort of vague and hazy. And so I think there's a lot of like, you know, uh, how, how do we kind of, um, solve the problems of today while, while thinking about, you know, where can we grow? Um, that, that I would say is probably like what are like, what are challenges and, and like, that's, I think like the interesting part of, of working on this right now. Yeah. Is, is there an opportunity to maybe to be a thought leader as it relates to ML ops? Like, is, is that a newer coined term and is there a lot of thought leadership or people investing in that area? I think so. I think that, you know, like one of the things that someone told me the other day about, you know, doing a startup and kind of doing this is like, you kind of have to like look bigger than you actually are, right? Like you, you need to be out there like doing a bunch of like, you know, putting out white papers, talking about, you know, your approaches to things and kind of like increasing the knowledge base. Um, so folks, folks will come to like have more trust in, in what you're building and what your vision is. Um, and so I think that there's definitely like an opportunity as this, as more and more companies kind of embrace machine learning and, and start actually putting it into production. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely, I think the space is only going to grow this next decade. Yeah. Especially from a discoverability perspective, like, you know, as, as new engineers are getting poured into this and companies are investing more when they go look for getting started resources or tooling to use, um, you know, being early trusted, uh, you know, an early trusted kind of thought leader in that area could could also yield just for for organic traction. You know, yeah, agreed. Um, okay, great. Well, I think this has been really interesting. Um, definitely one of the more technical conversations that we've had on the pod. So I very much appreciate you uh, sharing some of that wisdom with us. Um, to wrap things up, where can people find you? Like, where can they find Monitor ML online? Social handles? Where can they find uh, your social media presence? If you don't mind, just giving some shout outs. Yeah. Um, okay. So you can go to www.monitorml.com to find our landing page. Um, but if you want to follow us on social media, um, there's a Twitter account, Monitor ML, and then there's also my personal Twitter account, which is Aparna Dinek. It's A P A R N A. D H I N A K. Um, and you can just follow me and, you know, uh, shoot me a message. I'm happy to talk about any of these things 
um, in detail. Excellent. Well, Aparna, thank you so much for the time. Um, we really appreciate you uh, sharing a little bit about a little bit more about what you guys have been working on. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad I had an opportunity to do so. Thanks so much, Dan, for asking me to be on.